0: CrossPoint Church's weekly sermon audio from Lead Pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about CrossPoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. Well, good morning, happy Father's Day! It's good to be home, back in the states with you. I missed you, and I guess you missed me too. i you know, All right, feeling the love. Listen, if you have a Bible, no, 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 you can't make up for it. The moment is lost. It's gone. Never, we can never get it back. Let's go. First Thessalonians chapter one is where we find ourselves this morning. We're beginning a, a series through this wonderful, rich, beautiful letter that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. We're starting today, and we will be in this uh, in this letter uh, for for a good number of weeks here, through uh, certainly through the summer. And as you find for Thessalonians, I, we're going to have the text on the screen. But I think you would really be well served, especially if you're a newer Christian or maybe you're not a Christian and you're here visiting. You came by invitation. You would really help yourself if you actually opened the Bible yourself and follow it along. That's a great way to become more familiar with your own Bible. If you don't have a Bible, take the one that we have underneath the chair in front of you and use it and keep it. That's our gift to you. And if you're not used to looking up books in the Bible, this is a table of contents free zone. Don't feel any shame by looking in the table of contents. 1 Thessalonians is a smaller letter. Uh, But you can find it on the Bibles provided for you on either page 775 or 986. Same version of the Bible, just two different printings of it, different page numbers. Before we get into 1 Thessalonians, let me just mention um, that uh, we had a, as Springer alluded to, we had a wonderful trip in, in Uganda. Uh, I am so grateful for the church and the ministry that we were partnering with last year. Springer and Will led a team to go to this very same place, uh, Busega, Uganda, which is uh, basically a suburb of the capital city of Kampala. Uganda, if you're not familiar with it, is actually a very small country, but very densely populated country, right in the very heart of Africa, uh, kind of in the central east part of Africa, and uh, very densely populated, capital city of Kampala. Uh, The ministry of Lifeline, which is, we know it as a uh, primarily an adoption, a Christian adoption agency that David Wooten and Pepper Wooten, who... Actually, they're still members of Crosspoint, but have moved and are now relocating to Florida. Remember, David Wooten was the Georgia State Director for Lifeline. Now, the Florida State Director for Lifeline has helped many families in this church adopt. Well, Lifeline, which is based out of Birmingham, has many other ministries, and one of the ministries they have is called Unadopted, which helps to care for and partner with churches and ministries around the world that serve very vulnerable children, children that will very likely never be adopted. So that's where the phrase unadopted comes from. Not necessarily orphans, just very vulnerable children. And in this suburb of Kampala, Busega, Lifeline has partnered with a church there called King Jesus Church that is pastored by Pastor Raphael Kajubi, who is a wonderful, gracious, very gifted man of God and last year uh, Will and Springer led the team to go with a group of young people from our church to minister to his church and this year we did the same. So we just came alongside that church to love them, encourage them and also Pastor Raphael and his church has started a school for deaf children because deaf children in that culture are uh, often just cast aside as children that have no worth. In fact, they're often viewed as being cursed And, of course, that just makes them very vulnerable to just being preyed upon by uh, society. And so this church has started this uh, wonderful school for deaf children and actually some blind children now. And they're just doing a wonderful, wonderful uh, work. And, in fact, I'm really happy to tell you that in two weeks, the first Sunday in July, Pastor Raphael will actually be here in the States at Crosspoint. Lifeline had a previously scheduled trip. Uh, for With him, and so he 's coming working with some churches in the states, and he uh, had an opening on July fifth, so he 'll be with us and we 'll speak briefly to the congregation and then we 're going to have a lunch with him for anybody that went to Uganda or just wants to meet Pastor Raphael and hear more about the work there in Uganda. You can stay for lunch with him afterwards i 'm really looking forward to you getting to meet him. This man is is really carving out an enclave for the gospel in the middle of a city that has really two huge enemies to the gospel. So just to help you pray for the work of the gospel in Uganda, the two huge enemies of the gospel in Uganda are Islam. In fact, um, in Kampala, Muammar Gaddafi, remember the former uh, uh, dictator leader of Libya, financed the building of the largest mosque in sub-Saharan Africa right smack dab in the middle of Kampala. So it's this huge building that would seat about 30,000 people right there. So Islam is definitely advancing in Uganda uh, primarily through the financial backing of these Arab leaders. And then the second enemy of the gospel in Uganda is the false prosperity gospel which I really, I came to realize and be disgusted by is the number one export of America. It's the false prosperity gospel, that junk that gets piped out of TVs or through the airwaves via TBN and other just ridiculous of false ministries. It just makes you want to just come home and do bad things to prosperity preachers, really. Um, That's about all I'll say about that. But, uh, Do pray for them. And uh, the Lord, by His grace, just allowed us to do a pastor's conference with about 30 to 40 pastors there, Uh, very earnest and sincere people. But it was evident as I was speaking to them that many of them are trapped in this uh, just very false notion of what it means to be blessed by God. And so do pray for them. And Pastor Raphael is a man who recognizes this and is really trying to serve not just his own church, but other pastors in his city and is doing a wonderful job. So I'm really looking forward to you being able to meet him in a couple weeks. Now, I'm going to have to adjust. Uh, There is a difference between African and American culture. Um, They are much more responsive, (laughs) much more responsive. And you're a relatively responsive crew for kind of, you know, Columbus, Georgia. But we're talking about animated. I mean, the worship, it was, I mean, there's... 20 or 30 people up sort of on the worship team doing choreographed dance moves. And it is not put on. I mean, they are getting after it. You are burning at least 2,000 calories by the, every song. I mean, they were sweating. No air, no, nothing put on. No showmanship, just exuberance, right? And uh, I, I wish I had those moves. Um, and I wish I had the just the uh, cardiovascular endurance of half of the people there. And then when you just say something that they like, I mean, they will just, they'll just, they'll just start clapping. It's like, yeah, yeah, amen, right in the middle of a of a sermon point, and just over stuff that you don't even mention. In fact, in the pastors' conference when I was preaching to them, um, I just mentioned, and I guess marriage is 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 long term marriage in Uganda is a challenge, and I just happened to mention that I'd been married to twenty years, and they just went, whoa, 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 whoa. 20 years? I said, no, you, you really should be clapping for my wife on that one. <laughs> easy, easy, easy. Yeah, yeah I, I see. I see where this is going. All right, now that I've lost you, let's get into First Thessalonians. So I'm going to read the chapter, and then we're going we're to work our way. Really, today, uh, much of it is an intro to the first chapter. And as I've, I want you to read this letter over and over and over in these coming weeks. And we're going to immerse ourselves in this text. It is First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians are two little letters that really don't get much play. They're, they're sort of often ignored. And so we're going to really dive in. And, and I'm, I was kind of wondering, why is that? I, I, I'm not real sure why. Maybe it's even the name. It's just kind of hard to say. It's not as easy as Timothy or Titus or Colossians. I don't know. But there's, this is just going to be a treasure of uh, encouragement and assurance and hope for us as we get into this as we get into this letter so let me read the first chapter and then we're gonna uh, just kind of I'll give you an outline of how we're gonna work through this text let me read first Thessalonians chapter one Paul Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm getting emotional because when I was in Uganda and I was reading this, I was thinking this about you, and now that I'm here in the States and I'm reading this, I'm thinking about Uganda, this... this heart that Paul has for the church. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, and you became For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Oh, what a description of what it means to be a Christian. Verse 10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay, let me give you our outline, then we're going to pray. Witness to work through this outline to help frame our time together. The first is we're going to spend some time thinking about and looking at the context of this letter, the context of why Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians. Secondly, we're going to look at the main point of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Really, I think what is the essence of what Paul is trying to say. The first thing that he wants to anchor the Thessalonians in is that he begins this letter. And then thirdly, we're going to look at some application maybe to different types of hearers to this letter, even in this room today. So let me pray, and then uh, we'll work through this. Father, as we come to you, we thank you for your grace, that you would be so kind to us, that we can gather in your house with your word. This is, these are not just moral, uh, ethical suggestions. This is your very word, inspired by your Holy Spirit through your People that through authors that wrote exactly what you intended them to say to your church, not just the church of their time, but the church of all time. And God, it is now your word to us, completely true, with all authority and all power to bring life and health and change and repentance and joy to us and for us. So, God, I pray that as we read your word and as we think about it and as we stare at it and as we consider it, that we would put ourselves under it and it would humble us and it would give us joy and confidence and it would put steel in our spines and it would simultaneously encourage and convict that it would wound and heal and that it would bring glory to your name and, and joy to your people. And i joined join my prayers with Springer and the rest of us, that, God, that you would come alongside that community in Charleston, especially that church, Emmanuel AME Church, God. I'll minister to them. We stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that the gospel, we know it will triumph. And we pray that many would come to repentance as they see a beautiful picture of the gospel, even displayed in these families as they spoke to the perpetrator in court last week. Lord, now as we turn our attention to this text, put steel in our spines. Give us assurance and hope. I pray that you do these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is the context of 1 Thessalonians? Well, to, to really understand that, I think we need to read just briefly about how the church in Thessalonia started, or Thessalonica. So if you have a Bible, flip to Acts chapter 17. We're going to read about how Paul, just a few verses there, about how Paul and Silvanus, it's another word for Silas, Another name for Silas. And Timothy started this church. So Paul, in Acts chapter 17, is on his second missionary journey. And he, along with his, with his uh, co-laborers in the gospel, is taking the gospel, planting the church and churches in and throughout the Roman Empire and Greece. And Thessalonica is actually one of the cities in the Bible that is actually still existing today. Uh, it, it's still a city, a very important city in Macedonia in biblical times that still again exists today. So let's read in Acts chapter 17 about Paul taking the gospel. So in Acts chapter 16, Paul has received this Macedonian, called this vision, where he receives this vision that that there's this voice saying, come and come. Come and take the gospel west to us here in Macedonia. And so Paul starts to move the gospel west, and the gospel's been moving west ever since then. So we read in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, the start of the church in Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom... And on three Sabbath days, so basically three weekends, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So this was Paul's custom. He would start with the Jewish synagogue, and he would try and take the gospel to his countrymen, and he was taking the Old Testament, because the New Testament is, is in the process of being written, right? So the gospels and Paul's letters are not, Paul's in the process of writing them right now, and so it's not codified into what we know of as the the New Testament. So Paul is preaching the gospel to them out of the Old Testament, just like we did when we went through Genesis a a few months ago. So he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and listen to verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what is Paul's message to the Jews, and then later on to anybody that would listen in the church, in the synagogue, in Thessalonica, from the Old Testament? It's Jesus. So he's speaking to them. So, so Paul is preaching to them like we did out of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 22, when, when Paul, I'm sure, is speaking to them about, about uh, uh, Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac He's, he's showing them how that points to Jesus, right? And he's talking to them about King David. He's not, he's not speaking about David as just a moral tale. He's speaking to them about how David is a picture of Jesus, the true and better king that will come and finally slay the evil of sin for you. So, G, so Paul is preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout greeks and not a few of the leading women so a few of the jews believed and a great number of devout greeks now what were devout greeks they were greeks that were uh, they were kind of partial to judaism but they weren't quite sold enough on it to be circumcised so they were oftentimes in the new testament you were it will refer to them as god-fearing greeks or devout greeks means that they were attracted to Judaism, but they weren't quite taking that final step. And now that they hear the gospel, they're committed to become Christians and not a few of these leading women. Verse 5, but the Jews, obviously those who weren't convinced by Paul, were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. Now that's a phrase, isn't it? Who are the wicked men of the rabble? I mean, there's just this group called the rabble and they're wicked men that are a part of it and they're no fun to be around, evidently. They formed a mob. "...set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason." Jason was one of the people that was hosting probably these meetings, "...seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, "...these men have turned the world upside down." Who have turned the world upside down have come here also. "...and Jason has received them." And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then if we were to read further, we see where Paul and Silas and Timothy then, because of this disturbance, leave Thessalonica and move on to speak the gospel to another city in Berea. So now what has happened is, is Paul has taken the gospel just over the course of just about a month, three Sabbaths, three Saturdays, Paul has planted this church, a few Jews, a great number of Greeks or Gentiles, and some of the leading women formed this church and it really just caused an uproar. And they are now swearing their allegiance to the true King Jesus rather than the king of Rome. And this is causing a great disturbance and the Jews are very upset about about this because as the Jews underneath the authority of the Roman government, any disturbance would cause the Roman government to come in and really squash their uproar. And so they are very nervous about it and now they're starting to persecute these early Christians. And so what has happened now is Paul and Silas and Timothy have now left Thessalonica and have moved on. And now in Acts chapter 18, later on, we find out that Paul is in Corinth. And Paul is is gone from the Thessalonians and he's now concerned about how the Thessalonians were doing. He only had about a month with them. And he left them in sort of an uproar. And now like any good pastor, Paul is concerned about how the Thessalonian church is doing. So what he does is he sends Timothy one of his co-laborers in the gospel back to Thessalonica to give them a sort of, to check in on them to see how they're doing. Because he didn't have time with, he didn't have much time. He only had four short weeks to really teach them. And he's wondering how they're doing. And so Timothy goes to Thessalonica and now brings word back to Paul, which is mostly a good report, but it's kind of mixed with some things that Timothy's concerned about. And he shares with Paul. And what are those situations or things that Paul is now concerned about that really form the reason why he wrote First Thessalonians. Well there's a few things that Paul that are the occasion of Paul's letter to the First Thessalonians, the purpose of his letter. First, is that he's concerned about their the persecution that they're facing. They are enduring persecution because they have turned to Christ. They're enduring persecution from just the Gentile culture and they're enduring primarily persecution from the Jews that are upset that some of the Jews have now accepted Christ as the Messiah. So he's writing to encourage them and to put steel in their spine because they're facing persecution. Secondly, uh, another reason Paul's writing them is because some of the opponents Paul's uh, opponents in in the church in Thessalonica were saying to them, "You know what? Paul didn't really love you. Look, he left after 4 weeks and he hasn't come back. So he's really not concerned about you." And he's writing to tell the people, "No, no, no. I am concerned about you." Another great reason, which we'll get to when we see in, in chapter 4 and, and and chapter 5, is that the Thessalonians we were very concerned about the timing of Jesus' return, right? So Paul didn't get to teach them much, all that he wanted to teach them. He had to leave after about four weeks. And some of the Thessalonians were beginning to die, like pass away. And they were, they were so eager. They were receiving what Paul had been saying so eagerly that they were expecting Jesus to come back any minute. And now some of their, their, their friends and, and brothers and sisters were, were dying And they hadn't had an opportunity yet to be taught by Paul about the afterlife and Jesus' return. And so they're starting to think, oh my gosh, have these people that have died missed out? And so they're starting to, you know, be anxious about that. And so Paul writes them to give them assurance and more clear teaching about jesus 's return, and we 're going to get into that in chapter four and five and it 's going to be awesome because we 're going to talk about all the just the, the really some of the goofiness that we see even in the church in America, how about people want to put a, a date on jesus 's return and all sorts of stuff so we 're going to get into that and then G, and then Paul writes to the Thessalonians because they 're a young church and they 're new Christians, and they live in a in a city, Thessalonica, that was awash in sexual immorality. In fact, it was a, it was a, a culture that really worshipped the phallic symbol. And it was just it, it, it was a culture that worshipped sex and fertility. And they would have parades that they would kind of parade these phallic symbols in the streets. And this is the culture that, that these young Christians are being saved out of And Paul is very concerned because he's receiving a report from Timothy that some of these young Christians are claiming to be Christians, but they're still living sexually like they did before they were Christians. So let me say that again to modern-day Americans in 2015. There were a bunch of people in the church who were claiming to be Christians, but were still living sexually like they did before they were Christians. They were claiming that Jesus was... They're king, but they weren't living in certain aspects of their life, primarily their sexuality, like he was king. Like maybe some of you in this room are. And we're going to get to that when we get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And Paul's going to, going to correct them and exhort them to live in line with the kingship of Jesus. So that's the context of the letter. Now, second point of our outline. What is the main point of Thessalonians? Well, let's, let's look again at at verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and we'll, we'll probably just get through that. I think we'll be in 1 Thessalonians 1 again next week. Start in verse 2. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, And steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's thanking God for what he sees, the fruit that he sees in them. He sees this obvious evidence that they are trusting in Christ. And then I think that that's capped off at the end of chapter one where he says that the most obvious evidence that they have turned from their former way of life to Jesus is that they've turned from idols, right? So Paul, the point Paul is making in chapter one is he's saying that I can see that you are true Christians because of the evidence, the fruit that I see in your life. And then in verse four, I think is really just the heart of Paul's here in chapter 1. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So what he's saying is, is he's saying, Thessalonian Christians, you're enduring persecution. You're anxious about the future. And this is causing doubt and anxiety and stress in your life, and so Paul is wanting to give them, basically the point of 1 Thessalonians 1 is a pastoral pep talk of assurance, right? He's giving them a half-time pep talk telling them that you're anxious, you're, you're fraught with doubt about the future, you're being racked by persecution, and even some of you are, are kind of still struggling with sin, and he's saying to them, No, 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 be confident because I see evidence of God's choosing, of God's election. Now, this brings up a doctrine that Paul is just woven throughout Paul's letters, woven throughout, I think, the whole Bible, that is oftentimes controversial. And sometimes Christians will really get kind of anxious when they see this, but it's the doctrine of election, or the doctrine of God's choosing. And Paul is saying to the Thessalonian church here, he says, I know, brothers, that you are loved by God, that he has chosen you because I see the evidences in your life of God's prior grace. I know that you're chosen. I know that there's a fruit of God's sovereign grace in your life because of all these evidences that I see in your life. He appeals to God's choosing as the basis for their works. You see that? He doesn't say, he, he doesn't appeal to anything in them. He doesn't appeal to their intelligence or their goodness or their worthiness. He appeals to God's choosing of them in Christ, before they had done anything, as the evidence that should give them confidence. And because God has chosen them, they are necessarily producing fruit in their lives. They're they're starting to turn away from sin. They're they're, they're showing hope and faith and love, and, and they're turning from idols. And this is really the The theme of God's grace throughout all of the scriptures. It's not just in Thessalonians, but it's also in Deuteronomy. It's in in the Old Testament. Notice God says these words to to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, 7, and 8. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all the peoples but it is because the lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what he says to the Old Testament Jews, and what he's saying to the first Thessalonians, is essentially the same things. He's saying, I know you're a Christian, not because you are awesome, and God decided to make you part of his team. He's saying he chose you in love, because he loves you, right? Right? So if it's it's halftime of a game when the Thessalonians are down, he's not saying to them, listen, I know you're going to be able to make it because you have lots of gifts. You're not going to be able to make it because God saw something in you that he didn't see in anybody else. And so if you will just keep maintaining that thing, then you'll be okay, right? No, he says that he chose you because he chose you. He loves you, Israel, and he loves you, Thessalonians, and he loves you, New Testament Christian in Columbus in 2015, not because you're American, not because you brought anything to the table, not because you figured it out, not because you were strong, not because you were intelligent, not because you did something with faith that somebody else didn't do, but he loves you because he loves you. Why is that so important? Because if he loves me because of no good thing in me, but simply because of his grace, he's not going to stop loving me if there's something that's not good in me that's not, that I'm not doing in that present moment. Do you see that? Do you see that the root of God's work in the Thessalonians had nothing to do with anything in them, but it was purely based because of his sovereign love. And that, Paul is wanting them to see that because they need an anchor that goes deeper than their own strength. And so do we, don't we? And Paul is drilling home to these Thessalonians Christians. He's saying to them essentially, I know that there's a root in you because I see the fruit that the root will necessarily bring. Do you see that? There's fruit. So so this is this has all sorts of implications about even modern day Christianity in America. How do we know we're Christians? Is it merely because we raise our hands and recite a prayer, or or maybe our dad or mom was a member of the church, or our grandfather, you know, was a deacon or our grandmother played the piano or folded the bulletins? No. We know we are Christians by whether or not there is evidence in our lives of something that God put in us in eternity past to make us love him. And it will bring forth fruit in every true Christian's life. And Paul is saying, he's wanting to encourage them because they're, they're anxious and they're being, they're being beaten down by their culture and he's saying to them, no, 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 don't be discouraged. I see an evidence of God's grace in you because I see it in the way that you're working out your salvation and everything that you do, the way that you're enduring in hope and you're turning from idols. And so the question to us as we read this letter is, it, is there any evidence in our lives? Do we see these same things? In a, oh, friends, I see it all over this church. I see evidence of people turning from idols, standing steadfast in hope. And Paul, just like to the Thessalonians, through the Holy Spirit, is saying to us, anchor your hope in what God has done in you in eternity past, not because of any gift or strength in your own ability to hold on to Christ. And that's Paul's main point, I think, of to the church in Thessalonians in chapter 1. He is wanting to anchor them in God's sovereign grace. I know that he chose you because I see the evidence that it is necessarily being. So, if a person claims to be a Christian and there's no evidence, there's no there's no fruit in their life. I think that we, biblically, should be able to say, I, I don't know. Are you a Christian? And that's wildly unpopular in American church culture these days, just to doubt anybody's salvation, because we just, you know, we want to come to church and just pat each other on the back. and Oh, you're awesome. You're awesome. I'm so happy you're here because I'm an insecure pastor, and I just want crowds, right? That's what kind of basically what, what happens. You see, that's not what Paul's saying. In fact, he'll actually write in Second Corinthians chapter 13, he'll say that you should test yourself to see that you're in the faith. And I think that one of the things a gospel-minded church should do is to sort of push on one another at times to create a culture that's gracious. See, isn't this just a fine line? And of course, we want to be gracious, but, but yet not to create a culture where people just are sort of deceived into thinking that they're okay with God when they are maybe somebody who has said that they're a Christian and they're continuing to live like they were before. Paul, Paul would not say these things to that type of person. He, he would not say that I see this evidence in you. he he would say to them, which he's going to say in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's saying that you need to turn from this immorality and turn to God and give evidence that he truly loves you. And so Paul is wanting to anchor. It's like he's trying to do a few things. He's wanting to anchor the two true Christians in their hope. And he's wanting to rattle the cage of the people who may be falsely assured and think that they're Christians. So in the same message, you see how how he's encouraging the true Christians and he's trying to convict the people that, think they're Christians but aren't and and that should really be what we do in every message here when we hold up Christ this is what it looks like to follow Jesus to to be somebody that's turning away from idols and and putting your hope in Jesus and is striving together with other Christians to live and to bear fruit and to glorify God and enjoy him forever and ever so that's the main point of, of first Thessalonians and we end on this some application of three different hearers. First is, the first hearer, I think that Paul intends to hear this, and it's certainly in this room today, is people that know that they're Christians. You know you're a Christian. You're trusting in Christ. And 1 Thessalonians is there by the Holy Spirit to come and encourage us, to remind us, to give us like a pep talk, a a halftime speech, to say that look, I see this in you and I know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because your life is giving evidence of this. And so if God chose you because of nothing good in you, then you can endure whatever this world has to throw at you. And so he's, he's speaking to Christians and he's saying like he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 12, for I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me God will guard you, weary Christian. Hang in there. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So Paul's one concern is Christians who know they're Christians who are weary and he's saying to them look, look, look God is not giving up on you. I see evidences of his grace in you. So hang in there. He will not lose any of his sheep no matter what this world throws at you. Second application or group of people is people that know that they're not christians you know you're not a christian and you're in this room right now and you're saying well this is not good what are you saying here that god loves me because he loves me i thought i was going to hear if i do this this and this then god will accept me that's probably the false sort of notion of christianity that maybe you've bought into and, and you're realizing that, no, that's not the message, that really my only hope is the sovereign grace of God. My only hope is that God loves me, not because of anything good in me, but simply because of his grace. Yes, friends, if you stare long enough at that, you will see that that is actually good news. And I think if you're seeing that, if you're even seeing that, I believe that's evidence that God is opening up your life. He's causing you to go from death to life so that you can even see that and have your heart be drawn to that and you'd be attracted to that true gospel grace. And if you're seeing that, even for the first time, you don't need now to run back into your corner and think of three or four things that you need to do to please God. You need to maybe for the first time realize that you can't please God and you need to throw yourself wholly at his feet asking for his total grace and love. That isn't conditioned upon anything that you can do because you can't do anything to please a holy and righteous Creator. God. Do you see that? See, friends, don't let the doctrine of God's choosing push you away from God and think, oh, if you're even seeing it, I think that that's evidence that God is opening your heart. He's causing your dead heart to see that he loves you because he loves you, not because of anything in you. Friends, that is grace free and clear. Don't be repelled from it. Be compelled and run to it. Even now. Even now. Friends, do you see what spectacular good news this is? There's nothing you can do. So he's done it all. And if you're seeing that, I believe that means that he's making you alive so that you can run to him. So do it. Do it. Do it. Do what newborn babies do. Breathe out the language of faith and trust in Jesus even now. Do you see that? And then the third application or group of people that may be in this room is that maybe you think you're a Christian, but you're self-deceived and you're actually not. And I think that this uh, summer through First Thessalonians, Especially when we get into chapter 4. It's going to be really uncomfortable for you. And I think by God's grace, the Holy Spirit is just going to make you miserable. And it's going to be the best thing for you. Maybe you're a a young guy in here and you can do the Christian game. And you're just kind of conducting your life outside of your little Christian bubble community any way you want and you're, you're fixing to be miserable for the next couple weeks. You're welcome. Congratulations. <laughs> um, or maybe you're just kind of a cultural Christian, a nominal Christian, a name only. And it's not like any some great category of sin. You know, it's not like you're sleeping with your girlfriend or doing something, you know, like that. That's sort of obvious. But you're, you're just, you're sort of, you, really, you, you've kind of attached yourself to a sort of southern Bible belt no demands, no kingship. You've even bought into this false notion that Jesus could be your Savior but not yet your Lord. That is a lie straight from the pits of hell. It doesn't mean that Christians don't still struggle with sin, but Jesus, his kingship is part of his saviorship, right? and you are falsely, you know, there's no great category of sin, but your your Christianity doesn't go beyond your lips. It's not really in your heart, and you know all the right words to say, but really your life is full of just pursuit of piling up idols. Whatever those idols may be. And the trick is that those those idols can really kind of be good things, right? And you're just piling them up and you're finding your significance in them and you're going Sunday after Sunday just getting a little Jesus hit just enough, as Billy Graham said decades ago, to inoculate you from the true gospel. And I think that's the danger of growing up in a city and in a culture where there is a church on every street corner and where all of us kind of think we're generally Christian is that we are oftentimes deceived into thinking that we are right because we don't have any some, some major category of sin, but we are still locked and captive to our idols and we have just enough Jesus to think that, that we're okay with him when in reality we are lost, And friends, I would rather tick you off and I would rather make you miserable than to pat you on the back and tell you how you can have a good Tuesday managing your anger and never confronting your idols. I would rather make you mad at me and this church and just rouse you from your idolatry then leave you in that place and give you false assurance. I don't want to be like a doctor who when you walk into his exam room and you have a tumor growing in your chest looks you up and down and says oh you look pretty good slap you on the back give you a sucker from the treasure box although you're not a kid anymore I realize that but if you were at a pediatrician's office they would give you a sucker and send you on your way you look good No, we want to let the Holy Spirit examine what's truly in our hearts and if we're not truly trusting in Christ and all these other little things, we want God to truly save us. Right? And that may be you. In fact, I am certain that there are some people like that in this room today. And I'm praying that even today and as we work through this letter, that God would make the love that he has shown in Christ on the cross to bear the wrath of God that should have been yours and absorb it and extinguish it and satisfy it and then rise again in victory over death and sin that it would God would make that irresistible and so beautiful, and so much more satisfying than any of these little trinkets and idols that we often captive to so that we would be like these Thessalonians and turn from our idols and put our hope in God. And then we would be like we anchor ourselves because look persecution and anxiety and more sin is going to have to be fought and dealt with. And we need chapter one. We need to see the root of salvation is God's grace not our ability. And we need to bear fruit so that we can be a display of the gospel in this broken world. And we need to be anchored by that. And we need that back leg bent and we need to go and we need to do it together, right? So we need 1 Thessalonians 1 and we need to see this type of love and be captured by it and be drawn to it and trust in it. Let's pray. Father, as we embark on this journey Through this letter, I pray that you would anchor us in indescribable love. I pray that true Christians in this room would be fortified and emboldened and have steel put in their spines. Pray that people that know that they're not trusting in Christ would finally have their eyes opened from the hamster wheel of performance. That the exhausting wheel of good works that will never fully satisfy that they can finally jump off of that wheel and see that Your grace and love is free. And that that would be evidence, God, that they are being made alive by you and they would turn away from works and turn away from their own righteousness, turn away from their own effort, and they would finally trust in Christ. And then, Lord, finally, I pray for some in this room who maybe you're self-deceived and just because they're a good kid that grew up in Columbus, Georgia or in the Bible Belt somewhere they think that they're okay with you just by association this kind of cultural assimilation Lord I pray that you'd make that person just so miserable I pray that you'd start to make sin and idols taste terrible to them I pray that either even right now or over the course of our time in this letter that you would give them a a true awareness that all this time they've just only had you on their lips and not on their heart and they need to turn from their idols and see and trust in Jesus. Lord, we need this We need the root of grace. Help us see this, I pray. For the glory of your name, for the good of your people, show us these things. In Jesus' name, amen.